0: Please take your Bible and turn to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 24, where I read earlier. We'll begin reading there in verse 13 in just a moment. The title of this morning's message is When Easter Isn't Enough. When Easter Isn't Enough. This past Friday, pastoral staff, ministry staff, and I got to share the Easter story with multiple groups of children, about 15 different groups of kids. and So we told the story again and again several times, and after I shared the story with my groups, I always gave them an opportunity to ask whatever they wanted to ask, to ask questions. And that's always interesting and a little scary if you're the one that's got to answer the questions. Like, one of them asked, who made God? You know, that's a deep theological question. And um, trying to describe in abstract terms an answer to that was challenging. Uh, one, One young man, very seriously. Leaned forward and said in front of the class, he said, he said, um, do do people really go down there? Do people really go down there? I mean, dead serious all of a sudden in that group of kids as they were listening in response to that. I think probably my favorite question that I got Friday was this, who puts money in the Easter eggs? I said, I don't know, no one puts money in my Easter eggs, but whoever does it for you is pretty nice, and, um, and I thought that was a great question. Did you know that church attendance today is doubling all over the United States, it happens every Easter, about 40% of the American population is in church this morning, but you know that doesn't last, uh, because next week it'll be less than 20%. And, um, and so something is different. Kids get all excited about Easter. They're excited about it. But for too many people, for many people, and perhaps some of you sitting here today, Easter is not enough. Something is missing. missing. Something is lacking. This morning, we want to explore what happens, how Jesus can address that need, if that, in fact, is what you're experiencing today in verse 13 the story opens in this way now behold two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus which was seven miles from Jerusalem and they talked together of all these things which had happened so it was while they conversed and reasoned it means they went back and forth with each other that Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. That was a, a, a miracle. That was a supernatural thing. It's passive. It was something done to them and it kept them from recognizing who Jesus was. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. One is named Cleopas. We don't know the other one's name. They're going about seven miles out of Jerusalem to Emmaus, obviously where they're from or where they live. And did you catch what Jesus said about them in verse 17? He said, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? As you walk and are sad. Does that strike you as odd? It did me. I mean, they know about the empty tomb. They've heard the reports that Jesus is risen. But instead of walking to that area, checking things out, exploring those things, they're walking away from Jerusalem. And they are sad. It was not enough. Something was missing. They were missing something in their lives and their hearts. (coughs) On your fill-in-the-blank listening guide, The first statement that I want to call your attention to is this, the problem with knowing about Jesus, the problem with knowing about Jesus, they they knew about an empty tomb. Everybody here has heard about an empty tomb. They heard that he was risen. Everybody here has heard the story that Jesus is risen. They, They knew about Jesus. The problem with knowing about Jesus is that you can know all of the facts and still not know him. I want to illustrate it this way. I know it's Easter, but I want to show you a clip from a film called White Christmas. <laughs> and um, it was made in 1954. It's a dance scene. Shouldn't we dance at Easter? It's a dance scene. And the actress is named Vera Allen. And there's a man dancing with her. They're calling him Johnny. His, his name was John Bracia uh, in the film. I want you to watch this for a moment. The last now, keep it rocking, will you fellas <laughs> Got to do that every Easter morning, don't you? <laughs> I got hot just walking in the room, <laughs> much less doing all of that. Well, the um, the man's actual name was Giovanni Brascia. Giovanni Brascia. He was Italian, native-born Californian. Let me give you some facts about him. Uh, he was uh, 80 years old when he died two years ago. He was a protege of Fred Astaire. He began dancing on Broadway as a young man until he became a star after that scene in White Christmas. He was an opening dance act. He and his partner for Lena Horne, Dean Martin, George Burns, and for 12 years was the opening act for Frank Sinatra. He appeared frequently on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Jack Benny Show, and the Hollywood Palace. He later became an actor and a movie producer, and those are just some of the facts about Giovanni Brascia but I met him. In fact, it was Easter Sunrise Service, Hollywood Bowl in Southern California when I met Giovanni. And at that point when I got to know him he ceased to be a two-dimensional figure on a screen. He was just a man and in fact it was right about that time that I saw Giovanni put his trust in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Giovanni was saved. He was born again. And he was completely transformed. Now, he tried to show me some of his dance moves. And um, he tried to teach me how to play tennis. That was an epic fail. <laughs> but i tell you what, what really caused Giovanni and I to connect was that he loved Jesus so much that he was reading his Bible for hours every day. And he was so excited about what he was learning and what he was seeing about God. He would call me up two or three times in the morning, two or three times in the afternoon. He'd come by the office, he'd sit down. He'd say, what does this mean? And he was so excited about the Lord. Now, I could have watched that movie, and I had before I met him. I could have watched it a hundred times and, uh, and, and could have told you some facts about Johnny Brush in the in the film. But because I met him, Uh, It's different. And some of you this morning know all about the facts of the Easter event. You know about the empty tomb. You know about the resurrection, that he is risen. But you don't know him. You don't know him. And these disciples were really in that kind of position. They knew about him. He was a prophet. He had done great miracles. They had uh, followed him. They had watched him. But they had failed to understand the most significant thing he was ever going to do, and they were saddened on Easter Sunday, as are some of you. But you need more than just facts. You need to meet him. Let's see how Jesus deals with this. Look at verse 25 now as we read the rest of the story as Jesus begins to respond to these two disciples. And by the way, we know one of them is a man named Cleopas. We don't know if the other one was a man or a woman. There are all kinds of theories and discussions about that, but listen to what Jesus says, verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. What does that sound like? When did he do that last? Lord's Supper, that's right. And it was at that moment, verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. It was like, aha, we've seen this before. (laughs) And they realized who it was. And they said to one another, did our heart not burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread those two were transformed they went from being sad to being very glad weren't they they had a change of heart their whole perspective changed Had a change of heart they had a change of direction they no longer wanted to be in Emmaus sun was going down Jerusalem seven miles away walking 15-minute miles, which is really fast. They had a couple hours ahead of them to get back to Jerusalem, but that's what they did. And they had to change of direction. They were so excited, they went back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Now, why did they do that? Because they had met Jesus. They met Jesus. They needed more than facts about Jesus. They needed to see a back-from-the-dead Jesus, a Jesus who was alive. And so this morning, if you're the kind of person Who, for you Easter is not enough the question I want you to consider this morning is this how can you meet Jesus how can you meet Jesus and looking at these two disciples we can see several things that we can learn from them the first one that we see looking at them is is this how can you meet Jesus you need to understand first that Jesus is already near jesus is already near look at what he says what the bible says in verse 15 so it was while they converse and reason that jesus himself drew near and went with them they didn't know that but it was true jesus was there they were prevented from recognizing him but he was there nevertheless and what does it mean when it says he drew near and went with them it means he walked with them And in the Bible, the concept of walking is the description that God most uses to describe the kind of relationship that he wants with you. He wants to walk with you. You can go all the way back to Genesis and see how God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. You can go to Abraham and read in Genesis 17 how God told him, Abraham, I want you to walk before me. You can go to the Exodus where all the people were delivered out of Egypt and he says in the... Giving of the law in Leviticus chapter 26, it's quoted in 2 Corinthians 6. It says this, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. God wants to walk with you. Christians that you know that seem to have a relationship with God, not just ideas about God, but seem to have a real relationship with him, often they will describe that relationship in terms of a walk. My walk with God. And they'll talk to you about their time alone with God. They'll talk to you about things that they're learning in God's word, about who he is. They'll talk to you about how their life is changing because he is present in their life. And they describe it as a walk. And if you are here this morning and you know about Jesus, but you haven't met Jesus, you need to know this. He wants to walk with you. Do you realize how close he is right now? Do you realize that he knows everything about you? That he's right here? That he loves you? That he's not some distant disinterested deity often some far corner of the universe but he is he is here he is near and he wants to walk with you how can you meet jesus realize that he is near secondly read and explore what the bible teaches about jesus read and explore what the bible teaches about jesus in verse 27 it says he took these two and he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All the scriptures. So he took this Bible and he explained how the Bible talked about him, how it revealed him, how it pointed to him. I think the question you should have, if you're honest, is can I trust the Bible? Can I trust that the Bible is true? There are plenty of skeptics who are always attacking the scripture. I was reading just this week a guy that said that this story that we're reading was a myth. It was a legend. It was made up by the followers of Jesus. Just a myth. And what's really remarkable about that is is they're saying that about a story that's in the Gospel of Luke. If you go to the first four verses of chapter 1 of Luke, Luke makes it very clear. He's acting like a historian. He's gone to great lengths to get the facts, to interview people who were eyewitnesses to what took place and to put them in order, in chronological order. None of the other writers did that, but Luke tried to do that. He's the most factual of the four gospel writers in his efforts to gather the facts and to cite his sources. And you know, that's something that Bible scholars have recently discovered about the Bible. That if you look at the gospel accounts, that there are details in the stories that if they were made up, you wouldn't have bothered to drop those details in there you don't bother to put those in there Um, they're seeing more and more that the gospel is like an oral testimony given in a court of law that the stories that are shared have evidence built into them that in fact they were given by people who saw what was happening there's a man named richard bauckham he's a professor professor at the university of saint andrews in scotland wrote a book in 2006 called jesus and the eyewitnesses and that's what he does in that book I don't recommend it unless you have trouble sleeping at night, but it's really a remarkable book if you're you're a Bible scholar, you love reading about these things, because he goes through and he points out how the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of what took place. For example, um, in John chapter 18, verse 10, we have record that Peter, during Jesus' arrest, drew a sword and cut off the ear of a servant of the high priest. What was that guy's name? What was his name? Anybody know? Malchus. Malchus was his name. In John 18, we know the name. The other gospel writers didn't bother to give us the name, but John did, which, which uh, may be that because Malchus later became a Christian, but he was somebody who had a name, somebody that people would recognize. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Jesus is carrying the cross to Calvary to die on the cross, and he stumbles, and the Roman soldiers take Simon the Cyrenian, And they force him to carry Jesus' cross. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, listen to what Mark says. His name is Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. The father of Alexander and Rufus. Just one of those details. In this story that we're reading here, he mentions that one named Cleopas was the one that spoke to Jesus when they're on the road to Emmaus. Cleopas. Doesn't name the other one. Somebody made it up. They would have given a name to the other disciple, but they don't do that. You know what he's doing. You know what all these gospel writers are doing. They're giving footnotes. They're giving a way for you to fact check what they are saying. You want to know what happened in this story? You don't have to take my word for it. Go find Cleopas. You want to know what happened that day when they carried the cross up the hill? Go find Rufus and Alexander. Their daddy helped Jesus carry the cross. You see, they're dropping those names in there. They're real people. They're people that the readers would have known, people that they would have heard of who gave testimony because they were eyewitnesses to what took place. Let me give you another example. Did you know in the ancient world that women were not respected? And you said the ancient world, they really weren't respected. Jesus elevated the position of women in the church. He did and um, to a place of honor, respect, a place where they were equally um, brothers and sisters in Christ. And and you know who the first people were who saw the empty tomb? Was it men or women? Women. You know that, that people who study these things, you know what they point out about that? If you're making up a story and you want people to believe you, In ancient times, if you're making up a story, you want people to believe you, you're not going to make up that women saw him first. But they put it in there. i tell you something else that they're going to have in here. In verse 25, it says, Jesus, he he says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have said. You know, that sounds nice when you read it in in that English translation. But you know what he said? Do you have any brains? That's what he's saying. Do you have any brains? Where's your head at? He's not being complimentary. And you know, he's saying that to these two disciples. And and what was happening to these disciples was happening to all the followers of Jesus. They were scared. They were frightened. They didn't understand the resurrection. They didn't understand what was taking place. And these were the men and women who were going to be the leaders in the early church. Now, if I was making up a story about the founding of Christianity, would I tell a story that makes me look stupid? Unless... It really happened, and I'm just telling you like it was, and that's what we find in the gospel accounts, and so can you trust the scripture? I would say you most certainly can trust the scripture as the word of God. You say, well, Brother Don, there are some things I don't like that the Bible talks about, things that I don't agree with. It talks about gay people in a way I don't agree with. It talks about other religions, hell, pain and suffering. If God is in charge, why is there so much pain and suffering? It's got stuff in there I don't agree with. Did you know that the Apostle Paul was not always a Christian? The Bible tells us that he was a Jewish leader. He was extremely intelligent. He was one of the most remarkable, intellectual, gifted minds of his generation. And he was killing Christians. He was persecuting Christians. Now, most of the intellectuals that I know, people who are really smart, when they change their mind, it happens gradually. It happens over time. But you know the Apostle Paul changed his mind overnight. He changed his mind overnight. He went from persecuting Christians to preaching the gospel that they were preaching. Why was that? Because he saw the risen Jesus. That was his testimony. He saw Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul had a lot of questions. I know he did. A lot of questions about who Jesus was a lot of questions about the Christian message a lot of questions of things he didn't understand but he knew this he had seen Jesus and all those questions had answers he'd figure it out eventually but the first thing he had to realize was who Jesus was you say well Don I I still got real problems with Christian teaching and in in times I'll talk with people like that and they'll they'll bring up all these other issues things that I have problems with in the Bible things I'm not, not not sure are true and I say well let's go back to the main thing first Did Jesus rise from the dead? Do those objections that you have, does that in any way discount the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? Deal with that first, because if that's not true, you don't have to worry about the rest of the Bible. You don't have to worry about the things you disagree with in the Bible. You just need to establish, first and foremost, is Jesus Lord that he truly rise from the dead. You know, of all the people in the world that God could have sent Jesus to, the Jews were not the people who believed that a human being could be God in the flesh. The Romans thought that could happen. The Greeks thought that could happen. Asians thought that could happen. Africans thought that could happen. But the Jews, they never thought that could happen. And yet, literally overnight, thousands of Jewish people put their faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Why? because they either saw him themselves or they saw and talked to the eyewitnesses who saw a risen jesus when jesus met these two souls on the road to emmaus where did he take them first where did he start working with them and their doubts where did he go when easter wasn't enough he started with the scripture he started with the bible and that's where you need to start too if you're here this morning and you have never read the scripture can i encourage you to start with the gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, start with the Gospels. Explore those. Read them. Watch Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And see if he'll not open your heart as he did those disciples on the road that morning. Well, how can you meet Jesus? First, realize that he is near. Second, read the Bible to learn about him. But there's a third thing that you can do. Set your heart to know God and to do his will. You've got to make that decision set your heart to know God and do his will in verse 29 it says but they constrained him Jesus was going to go past Emmaus but they constrained him saying abide with us that word constrained means they forced him to come into the house they forced him to stay with them why because he knew stuff about God and they were all about knowing the truth about God They wanted to know Him. They wanted to know who He was. They wanted to know what His will was for their life. And they needed Jesus to stay there. You know, I meet people who want to debate religion. They want to talk about religion. They want to discuss things they agree with or don't agree with in the Bible. But they're not interested in God getting a hold of their life. They're not interested in changing. They're not interested in stopping things that hurt themselves and others and forming new ways of living. that that reflect the presence of God in their life. They're not interested in that. Jesus talked about what you have to do in John chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, and he's arguing with religious people. He says, my doctrine, what I'm teaching, is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, not a one-time decision, but the way that's worded in the original language, he's saying someone who wants to do it all the time. If, if you got a person who wants to do his will, who's sincere about that, who wants to know who he is, he says, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You know what he's saying? He's saying that if you're sincere about knowing God, knowing the truth, and that's your heart and you're on a journey, you want to know the truth, you're seeking the truth, Jesus said, if you're a person like that, a man like that, a woman like that, if you come and you look at me, you listen to me, you watch me, God's going to do something supernatural to confirm the truth in your heart. He shall know. He shall know. When you make it your mission to know God and his will for your life, He will overcome your doubts. He will overcome your fears. He will overcome all the barriers that you think are keeping you from knowing him. The question is, do you want to know him? How can you meet Jesus? Realize that he is near. Second, read the Bible to learn about him. Third, set your heart to know God and do his will. And then finally, if you want to meet Jesus, believe in Jesus and he will save your life. Believe in Jesus, and he will save your life. Look at what happened to this, too. In verse 31, it says, Then their eyes were opened. Now, God did that. That was a supernatural work. You remember they couldn't recognize him before. And now God opened their eyes. And they knew him. And in that instant, it says, And he vanished from their sight. Jesus had a resurrection body. That body could eat. It could be touched. It was tangible, but it wasn't like any body you and I have got. And it says he vanished. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us? And notice that word burn. It's like something on fire. Now, they didn't do this. It was what was happening in their heart in the presence of Jesus. Their heart was burning. While he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. The world changed immediately for that pair. Everything was different. Heart changed, direction changed. Everything was different. Why? Because God came and did a work in their life. God came and revealed some things to them. And maybe right now at this moment in your life, you've come with questions even today on Easter Sunday. And maybe you know me, maybe you don't know me, but I'm telling you Jesus is near. And Jesus is speaking to your heart. And when he does that, you've got to respond to him. What if those two disciples had said, Well, all that was very nice. We felt a little burning in our heart. Well, we're just going to stay home now. What would they have missed? When God speaks to you, when God shows himself to you, when God stirs your heart, you've got to respond to him. You may not do it tomorrow, you may not do it this afternoon. You've got to respond to him. Jesus explains to us what you can do, what you need to do. In John 3, 16, and 17, and 18. Now, verse 16, a lot of you Bible scholars, you'll know this verse. For God so loved the world. Anybody here not part of the world? We're all part of the world, right? So God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, there's only two destinies. I told those little kids Friday, I said, you know, every one of you has got a life. They acted like I told them something they didn't know. I mean, they acted surprised. I said, you know, everybody here has got a life. And did you know that life's eternal? There's only two possibilities when your life ends. He says, whoever believes in him should not perish. That's one option. Or have everlasting life. That's the other one. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Look at that word condemned. It's used three times in the text. Condemned. Condemned. If you haven't believed in Jesus, he says you're condemned already. What's he mean by that? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that every person in this room, every human being that has ever lived, is going to stand one day before what is called the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody. And when we go before that judgment seat, our works are judged. Our works are judged. Did we do things in obedience to him? Were we disobedient to him? Did we live for him? Did we love him? We are judged according to our works. And the only result of that exercise is condemnation. In fact, it's so certain, he says, that if you haven't believed in Jesus, you're condemned already. You say, well, that seems kind of harsh that God would judge me the same way he judges a serial killer or some person guilty of some kind of maniacal genocide, some kind of crazy person overseas that kills people. Your sin's just as serious. Is the sin of a serial killer. How do I know that? Because it put Jesus on the cross. And that condemnation is serious. And if you're here this morning, you've not received Christ, you're already condemned. What if you were a daddy? You went to bed one night, and your your grown daughter came into your bedroom, stole your credit cards, checkbook, took the cash out of your wallet, and disappeared the very next morning as early as the bank opened she went withdrew all your your money and went and just lived any way she wanted to for weeks and the weeks became months and then one day she shows back up she's out of money she shows back up she comes in she says hey pop she just walks right on in the house and uh, no worries no care she just comes right on in the house now look We don't have time to get into the theological ramifications of what I'm about to tell you, but but let me just talk to you as one human being to another. Would that be okay with you? Would that be okay with you? Wouldn't you stop her and say, hold on, young lady. We got some things to talk about. It's not okay what happened. We got to clear some things up. We got to clear some things up. And that's why you need to see the word believe in this text. Because at least four other times this word believe is used in these same verses. How do we escape the condemnation? The word, the key word is believe. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How does that condemnation go away? Well, the condemnation goes away when my sin has been punished. I don't want my sin to be punished by me. I don't want to be on that cross. But that's what Jesus did. He took your place and he died for you on the cross. And the Bible says that anyone that believes that, believes in him, will not perish. In fact, the certainty of your forgiveness is so mighty, so powerful, so clearly taught in Scripture that John later on in another book he wrote called 1 John, he says that on the day of judgment, if you have been forgiven, if you have believed on Jesus Christ, you can be bold on the day of judgment. Boldness. No fear. Only love. And you can stand before Father God and you can say, dear God, I know I'm guilty, I know I'm a sinner, but your son died for my sin. And I put my trust in him. Now this word believe, just hear this, the word believe does not mean just to believe things about Jesus. The word believe means to abandon your life to Jesus. Do you understand the difference? Otherwise, you're just like the disciples. They knew the tomb was empty. They knew he was supposedly risen. But they had never truly understood who he was. And now they did. And they just forget the house. (laughs) Forget what's in Emmaus. We're going to follow him. We're going to live for Jesus the rest of our life. This morning, you have the opportunity right now in this worship service to publicly, without any kind of worry or shame about what people are going to say or think, you have the opportunity to publicly put your trust in Jesus Christ and say, I am abandoning myself and trusting myself to him. That's what it means to believe on Jesus. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. Have you ever wondered, you look at the church in North America, you ever wonder why there's so much hypocrisy and so many people that don't seem to to know a, a lick about Jesus? It's because they know stuff about him, but they've never trusted themselves to him. You've got to abandon your life to Jesus Christ. There is no middle ground. You can't say, well, I'm just going to come and join the church. God, I hope that's good enough. It has nothing to do with the church. It has nothing to do with this building. It has nothing to do with this organization. It has everything to do with the state of your soul before God when all of us stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. I can't think of a more amazing time to surrender your life to Jesus Christ than on the day when we celebrate his resurrection. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if you're ready to put your trust in him, there'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. And they'll answer your questions. They'll let you read the scripture for yourself. And you can see for yourself what God was saying. When he said to believe on his son and they'll counsel with you And if we need more time than what we're going to do in this response time they'll take you to another room they'll sit and talk to you they'll take all the time you need to answer your questions until you are settled and you're ready to put your trust in jesus but we invite you to come you say well won't the people around here think uh, i'm a bad person or think there's something odd about me no they're going to rejoice They're going to love you. They're going to praise God that he's at work in your life because Jesus is here, remember? They're going to be excited for you. If you need someone just to pray with you, as always, this response time is a time where we can pray for one another. The altar's open. If you need to pray with a friend, you can grab their hand, come down here and pray. If that helps you, let this be a time of worship as you respond to him. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you. For what you did in the lives of these two disciples, would you do it again in the life of some man or woman here this morning who needs to put their trust in Jesus, who needs to take their stand, who needs to receive the gift of salvation that you have accomplished for them through your son and through his cross. Fathers, we respond to you now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would hover Over every heart in this room, speak to us, guide us as we respond to you now. In Jesus' name I pray.